be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, chapters 8 to 10. In the previous chapters, after being thrown overboard the Abraham Lincoln, Professor Aranax, Ned Land and Concier had discovered the true nature of the sea monster. In the following chapters, our adventurers are taken aboard a mysterious submarine. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 8 Mobilis in Mobili This forcible abduction, so roughly carried out, was accomplished with the rapidity of lightning. I shivered all over. Whom had we to deal with? No doubt some new sort of pirates who explored the sea in their own way. Hardly had the narrow panel closed upon me when I was enveloped in darkness. My eyes, dazzled with the outer light, could distinguish nothing. I felt my naked feet cling to the rungs of an iron ladder. Ned Land and Concier, firmly seized, followed me. At the bottom of the ladder, a door opened and shut after us immediately with a bang. We were alone. Where, I could not say. Hardly imagine. All was black, and such a dense black that, after some minutes, my eyes had not been able to discern even the faintest glimmer. Meanwhile, Ned Land, furious at these proceedings, gave free vent to his indignation. Confounded, 
cried he. Here are people who come up to the Scotch for hospitality. They only just miss being cannibals. I should not be surprised at it, but I declare that they shall not eat me without my protesting. Calm yourself, Ned friend. Calm yourself, replied Concier quietly. Do not cry out before you are hurt. We are not quite done for yet. Not quite, sharply replied the Canadian, but pretty near at all events. Things look black. Happily, my bowie knife I have still, and I can always see well enough to use it. The first of these pirates who lays a hand on me. Do not excite yourself, Ned, I said to the harpooner, and do not compromise us by useless violence. Who knows that they will not listen to us? Let us rather try to find out where we are. I groped about. In five steps, I came to an iron wall made of plates bolted together. Then, turning back, I struck against a wooden table, near which we ranged several stools. The boards of this prison were concealed under a thick mat of formium, which deadened the noise of the feet. The bare walls revealed no trace of window or door. Concier, going round the reverse way, met me, and we went back to the middle of the cabin, which measured about twenty feet by ten. As to its height, Ned Land, in spite of his own great height, could not measure it. Half an hour had already passed without our situation being bettered, when the dense darkness suddenly gave way to extreme light. Our prison was suddenly lighted. That is to say, it became filled with a luminous matter, so strong that I could not bear it at first. In its whiteness and intensity, I recognized that electric light which played round the submarine boat like a magnificent phenomenon of phosphorescence. After shutting my eyes involuntarily, I opened them and saw that this luminous agent came from a half-globe unpolished, placed in the roof of the cabin. At last one can see, cried Ned Land, who, knife in hand, stood on the defensive. Yes, said I, but we are still in the dark about ourselves. 
Let master have patience, said the imperturbable concierge. The sudden lighting of the cabin enabled me to examine it minutely. It only contained a table and five stools. The invisible door might be hermetically sealed. No noise was heard. All seemed dead in the interior of this boat. Did it move? Did it float on the surface of the ocean? Or did it dive into its depths? I could not guess. A noise of bolts was now heard. The door opened, and two men appeared. One was short, very muscular, broad-shouldered, with robust limbs, strong head, an abundance of black hair, thick moustache, a quick, penetrating look, and vivacity which characterises the population of southern France. The second stranger merits a more detailed description. A disciple of Gratulet or Engel would have read his face like an open book. I made out his prevailing qualities directly. Self-confidence, because his head was well set on his shoulders and his black eyes looked around with cold assurance. Calmness, for his skin, rather pale, showed his coolness of blood. Energy, evidenced by the rapid contraction of his lofty brows. And courage, because his deep breathing denoted great power of lungs. Whether this person was thirty-five or fifty years of age, I could not say. He was tall, had a large forehead, straight nose, a clearly cut mouth, beautiful teeth, with fine taper hands, indicative of a highly nervous temperament. This man was certainly the most admirable specimen I had ever met. One particular feature was his eyes, rather far from each other, and which could take in nearly a quarter of the horizon at once. This faculty, I verified it later, gave him a range of vision far superior to Ned Land's. When this stranger fixed upon an object, his eyebrows met, his large eyelids closed round so as to contract the range of his vision, and he looked as if he magnified the objects lessened by distance, as if he pierced those sheets of water so opaque to our eyes, and as if he read the very depths of the sea. The two strangers, 
with caps made from the fur of the sea otter, and with shod with sea boots of seal skin, were dressed in clothes of particular texture, which allowed free movement of the limbs. The taller of the two, evidently the chief on board, examined us with great attention, without saying a word. Then, turning to his companion, talked with him in an unknown tongue. It was a sonorous, harmonious, and flexible dialect, the vowels seeming to admit a very varied accentuation. The other replied by a shake of the head, and added two or three perfectly incomprehensible words. Then he seemed to question me by a look. I replied in good French that I did not know his language, but he seemed to understand me, and my situation became more embarrassing. If Master were to tell our story, said Concier, perhaps these gentlemen may understand some words. I began to tell our adventures, articulating each syllable clearly and without omitting one single detail. I announced our names and rank, introducing in person Professor Aranax, his servant Concier, and Master Ned Land, the harpooner. The man with the soft, calm eyes listened to me quietly, even politely, and with extreme attention. But nothing in his countenance indicated that he had understood my story. When I finished, he said not one word. There remained one resource, to speak English. Perhaps they would know this almost universal language. I knew it, as well as the German language, well enough to read it fluently, but not to speak it correctly. But, anyhow, we must make ourselves understood. Go on in your turn, I said to the harpooner. Speak your best Anglo-Saxon, and try to do better than I. Ned did not beg off, and recommenced our story. To his great disgust, the harpooner did not seem to have made himself more intelligible than I had. Our visitors did not stir. They evidently understood neither the language of Arago nor Faraday. Very much embarrassed, after having vainly exhausted our speaking resources, I knew not what part to take, when Concierge said, If Master will permit me, I will relate it in German. 
but in spite of the elegant terms and good accent of the narrator, the German language had no success. At last, nonplussed, I tried to remember my first lessons and to narrate our adventures in Latin, but with no better success. This last attempt being of no avail, the two strangers exchanged some words in their unknown language and retired. The door shut. It is an infamous shame, cried Nedland, who broke out for the twentieth time. We speak to those rogues in French, English, German, and Latin, and not one of them has the politeness to answer. Calm yourself, I said to the impetuous Ned. Anger will do no good. But do you see, Professor, replied our irascible companion, that we shall absolutely die of hunger in this iron cage. Bah, said Concier philosophically. We can hold out some time yet. My friends, I said, we must not despair. We have been worse off than this. Do me the favour to wait a little before forming an opinion upon the commander and crew of this boat. My opinion is formed, replied Nedland sharply. They are rascals. Good. And from what country? From the land of rogues. My brave Ned, that country is not clearly indicated on the map of the world. But I admit that the nationality of the two strangers is hard to determine. Neither English, French, nor German, that is quite certain. However, I am inclined to think that the commander and his companion were born in low latitudes. There is southern blood in them, but I cannot decide by their appearance whether they are Spaniards, Turks, Arabians, or Indians. As to their language, it is quite incomprehensible. There is the disadvantage of not knowing all languages, said Concier, or the disadvantage of not having one universal language. As he said these words, the door opened. A steward entered. He brought us clothes, coats and trousers, made of stuff I did not know. I hastened to dress myself, and my companions followed my example. During that time, the steward, dumb, perhaps deaf, had arranged the table and laid three plates, 
This is something like, said Concier. Bah, said the rancorous harpooner. What do you suppose they eat here? Tortoise liver, filleted shark, and beef steaks from sea dogs. We shall see, said Concier. The dishes of bell metal were placed on the table, and we took our places. Undoubtedly, we had to do with civilized people, and, had it not been for the electric light which flooded us, I could have fancied I was in the dining room of the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool, or at the Grand Hotel in Paris. I must say, however, that there was neither bread nor wine. The water was fresh and clear, but it was water and did not suit Ned Land's taste. Amongst the dishes which were brought to us, I recognized several fish, delicately dressed, but some, although excellent, I could not give opinion, neither could I tell what kingdom they belonged to, whether animal or vegetable. As to the dinner service, it was excellent and in perfect taste. Each utensil, spoon, fork, knife, plate, had a letter engraved on it, with a motto above it of which this is an exact facsimile. Mobilis in mobile. N. The letter N was no doubt the initial of the name of the enigmatical person who commanded at the bottom of the sea. Ned and Concier did not reflect much. They devoured the food. And I did likewise. I was, besides, reassured as to our fate, and it seemed evident that our hosts would not let us die of want. However, everything has an end. Everything passes away. Even the hunger of people who have not eaten for fifteen hours. Our appetites satisfied, we felt overcome with sleep. Faith, I shall sleep well, said Concier. So shall I, replied Ned Land. My two companions stretched themselves on the cabin carpet and were soon sound asleep. For my own part, too many thoughts crowded my brain. Too many insoluble questions pressed upon me. Too many fancies kept my eyes half open. Where were we? What strange power carried us on? I felt, or rather fancied I felt, the machine sinking down to the lowest beds of the sea.
dreadful dreams beset me. I saw in these mysterious asylums a world of unknown animals, amongst which this submarine boat seemed to be of the same kind, living, moving, and formidable as they were. Then my brain grew calmer. My imagination wandered into vague unconsciousness, and I soon fell into a deep sleep. Chapter 9 Ned Land's Tempers How long we slept, I do not know, but our sleep must have lasted long, for it rested us completely from our fatigues. I woke first. My companions had not moved and were still stretched in their corner. Hardly roused from my somewhat hard couch, I felt my brain freed, my mind clear. I then began an attentive examination of our cell. Nothing was changed inside. The prison was still a prison. The prisoners, prisoners. However, the steward, during our sleep, had cleared the table. I breathed with difficulty. The heavy air seemed to oppress my lungs. Although the cell was large, we had evidently consumed a great part of the oxygen that it contained. Indeed, each man consumes, in one hour, the oxygen contained in more than a hundred and seventy-six pints of air, and this air, charged as then, with a nearly equal quantity of carbonic acid, becomes unbreathable. It becomes necessary to renew the atmosphere of our prison, and no doubt, the hole in the submarine boat. That gave rise to a question in my mind. How would the commander of this floating dwelling place proceed? Would he obtain air by chemical means, in getting by heat? the oxygen contained in chlorate of potash and in absorbing carbonic acid by caustic potash? Or a more convenient, economical, and consequently more probable alternative would be by satisfied to rise and take breath at the surface of the water, like a cetacean and so renew for twenty-four hours the atmospheric provisions. In fact, I was already obliged to increase my respiration, to eke out of this cell the little oxygen it contained, when suddenly I was refreshed by a pure current of air, and perfumed with saline emanations. 
It was an invigorating sea breeze, charged with iodine. I opened my mouth wide, and my lungs saturated themselves with fresh particles. At the same time, I felt the boat rolling, the iron-plated monster had evidently just risen to the surface of the ocean to breathe, after the fashion of whales. I found out from that the mode of ventilating the boat. When I had inhaled this air freely, I sought the conduit pipe, which conveyed to us the beneficial whiff, and I was not long in finding it. Above the door was a ventilator, through which volumes of fresh air renewed the impoverished atmosphere of the cell. I was making my observations when Ned and Concier awoke, almost at the same time, under the influence of this reviving air. They rubbed their eyes, stretched themselves, and were on their feet in an instant. Did Master sleep well? asked Concier, with his usual politeness. Very well, my brave boy. And you, Mr. Land? Soundly, Professor. But I don't know if I'm right or not. There seems to be a sea breeze. A seaman could not be mistaken, and I told the Canadian all that had passed during his sleep. Good, said he. That accounts for those roaring we heard when the supposed narwhal sighted the Abraham Lincoln. Quite so, Masterland. It was taking breath. Only. Mr. Aranax, I have no idea what o'clock it is, unless it is dinner time. Dinner time, my good fellow? Say rather breakfast time, for we certainly have begun another day. So, said Concier, we have slept twenty-four hours. That is my opinion. I will not contradict you, replied Ned Land. But dinner or breakfast, the steward will be welcome, whichever he brings. Master Land, we must conform to the rules on board, and I suppose our appetites are in advance of the dinner hour. That is just like you, friend Cancier, said Ned impatiently. You are never out of temper, always calm. You would return thanks before grace and die of hunger rather than complain. Time was getting on, and we were fearfully hungry, and this time the steward did not appear. It was rather too long to leave us, 
if they really had good intentions towards us. Ned Land, tormented by the cravings of hunger, got still more angry, and notwithstanding his promise, I dreaded an explosion when he found himself with one of the crew. For two hours more, Ned Land's temper increased. He cried, he shouted, but in vain. The walls were deaf. There was no sound to be heard in the boat. All was still as death. It did not move, for I should have felt the trembling motion of the hull under the influence of the screw. Plunging in the depth of the waters, it belonged no longer to earth. This silence was dreadful. I felt terrified. Concierge was calm. Ned Land roared. Just then, a noise was heard outside. Steps sounded on the metal flags. The locks were turned, the door opened, and the steward appeared. Before I could rush forward to stop him, the Canadian had thrown him down and held him by the throat. The steward was choking under the grip of his powerful hand. Concier was already trying to unclasp the harpooner's hand from his half-suffocated victim, and I was going to fly to the rescue, when suddenly I was nailed to the spot by hearing these words in French. Be quiet, Mr. Land. And you, Professor, will you be so good as to listen to me? Chapter 10 The Man of the Seas It was the commander of the vessel who thus spoke. At these words, Ned Land rose suddenly. The steward, nearly strangled, tottered out on a sign from his master, but such was the power of the commander on board that not a gesture betrayed the resentment this man must have felt towards the Canadian. Concier, interested in spite of himself, I, stupefied, awaited in silence the result of this scene. The commander, leaning against the corner of a table with his arms folded, scanned us with profound attention. Did he hesitate to speak? Did he regret the words which he had just spoken in French? One might almost think so. After some moments of silence, which not one of us dreamed of breaking. Gentlemen, said he, in a calm and penetrating voice. I speak French, English, German, and Latin equally well. I could, 
therefore, have answered you at our first interview. But I wished to know you first, then to reflect. The story told by each one, entirely agreeing in the main points, convinced me of your identity. I know now that chance has brought before me Monsieur Pierre Aranax, Professor of Natural History at the Museum of Paris, entrusted with a scientific mission abroad. Conseil, his servant, and Ned Land, of Canadian origin, harpooner on board the frigate Abraham Lincoln of the Navy of the United States of America. I bowed assent. It was not a question that the commander put me to. Therefore, there was no answer to be made. This man expressed himself with perfect ease. His sentences were well turned, his words clear, and his fluency of speech remarkable. Yet, I did not recognize in him a fellow countryman. He continued the conversation in these terms. You have doubtlessly thought, sir, that I have delayed long in paying you this second visit. The reason is that, your identity recognized, I wished to weigh maturely what part to act towards you. I have hesitated much. Most annoying circumstances have brought you into the presence of a man who has broken all ties with humanity. You have come to trouble my existence. Unintentionally, said I. Unintentionally, replied the stranger, raising his voice a little. Was it unintentionally that the Abraham Lincoln pursued me all over the seas? Was it unintentionally that you took passage in this frigate? Was it unintentionally that your cannonballs rebounded off the plating of my vessel? Was it unintentionally that Mr. Ned Land struck me with his harpoon? I detected a restrained irritation in these words, but to these recriminations I had a very natural answer to make, and I made it. Sir, said I, no doubt you are ignorant of the discussions which have taken place concerning you in America and Europe. You do not know that divers' accidents, caused by collisions with your submarine machine, have excited public feelings in two continents. I omit the hypothesis without number by which it was sought to explain the inexplicable phenomenon of which you alone possess the secret. But you must understand that, in pursuing you over the high seas of the Pacific, 
The Abraham Lincoln believed itself to be chasing some powerful sea monster, of which it was necessary to rid the ocean at any price. A half-smile curled the lips of the commander, then in a calmer tone. Monsieur Aronnax, he replied, dare you affirm that your frigate would not as soon have pursued and cannoned a submarine boat as a monster? This question embarrassed me, for certainly Captain Farragut might not have hesitated. He might have thought it his duty to destroy a contrivance of this kind, as he would a gigantic narwhal. You understand, then, sir, continued the stranger, that I have the right to treat you as enemies. I answered nothing, purposely, for what good would it be to discuss such a proposition when force could destroy the best arguments? I have hesitated some time, continued the commander. Nothing obliged me to show you hospitality. If I choose to separate myself from you, I should have no interest in seeing you again. I could place you upon the deck of this vessel which has served you as a refuge. I could sink beneath the water and forget that you had ever existed. Would not that be my right? It might be the right of a savage, I answered, but not that of a civilized man. Professor, replied the commander quickly, I am not what you call a civilized man. I have done with society entirely, for reasons which I alone have the right of appreciating. I do not, therefore, obey its laws, and I desire you never to allude to them before me again. This was said plainly. A flash of anger and disdain kindled in the eyes of the unknown, and I had a glimpse of a terrible past in the life of this man. Not only had he put himself beyond the pale of human law, but he had made himself independent of them, free in the strictest acceptation of the word, quite beyond their reach. Who then would dare to pursue him at the bottom of the sea, when, on its surface, he defied all attempts made against him. What vessel could resist the shock of his submarine monitor? What cuirass, however thick, could withstand the blows of his spur? No man could demand from him an account of his actions. God, if he believed in one, his conscience, if he had one, were the sole judges to whom he was answerable.
These reflections crossed my mind rapidly, whilst the stranger personage was silent, absorbed, as if wrapped up in himself. I regarded him with fear mingled with interest, as doubtless Oedipus regarded the Sphinx. After rather a long silence, the commander resumed the conversation. I have hesitated, said he, but I have thought that my interest might be reconciled with that pity to which every human being has a right. You will remain on board my vessel, since fate has cast you there. You will be free, and, in exchange, I shall only impose one single condition. Your word of honour to submit to it will suffice. Speak, sir, I answered. I suppose this condition is one which a man of honour will accept. Yes, sir, it is this. It is possible that certain events, unforeseen, may oblige me to consign you to your cabins for some hours or some days, as the case may be. As I desire never to use violence, I expect from you, more than all the others, a passive obedience. In thus acting, I shall take all responsibility. I acquit you entirely, for I make it an impossibility for you to see what ought not to be seen. Do you accept this condition? Then things took place on board which, to say the least, were singular, and which ought not to be seen by people who were not placed beyond the pale of social laws. Amongst the surprises which the future was preparing for me, this might not be the least. We accept, I answered. Only I will ask your permission, sir, to address one question to you, one only. Speak, sir. You said that we should be free on board. Entirely. I ask you then, what do you mean by this liberty? Just the liberty to go, to come, to see, to observe even all that passes here, save under rare circumstances. The liberty, in short, which we enjoy ourselves, my companions and I. It was evident that we did not understand one another. Pardon me, sir, I resumed, but this liberty is only what every prisoner has of pacing his prison. It cannot suffice us. It must suffice you, however. What? 
We must renounce forever seeing our country, our friends, our relations again. Yes, sir. But to renounce that unendurable worldly yoke which men believe to be liberty is not perhaps so painful as you think. Well, exclaimed Ned Land, never will I give my word of honor not to try to escape. I did not ask for your word of honor, Master Land, answered the commander coldly. Sir, I replied, beginning to get very angry in spite of myself. You abuse your situation towards us. It is cruelty. No, sir. It is clemency. You are my prisoners of war. I keep you, when I could, by a word, plunge you into the depths of the ocean. You attacked me. You came to surprise a secret which no man in the world must penetrate. The secret of my whole existence. And you think that I am going to send you back to that world which must know me no more. Never. In restraining you, it is not you who I am guarding. It is myself. These words indicated a resolution taken on the part of the commander, against which no arguments would prevail. So, sir, I rejoined, you give us simply the choice between life and death. Simply. My friends, said I, to a question thus put, there is nothing to answer. But no word of honour binds us to the master of this vessel. None, sir, answered the unknown. Then, in a gentler tone, he continued. Now, permit me to finish what I have said to you. I know you, Monsieur Aranax. You and your companions will not, perhaps, have so much to complain of in the chance which has bound you to my fate. You will find amongst the books which are my favourite study the work which you have published on the depths of the sea. I have often read it. You have carried out your work as far as terrestrial science permitted you. But you do not know all. You have not seen all. Let me tell you then, Professor, that you will not regret the time passed on board my vessel. You are going to visit the land of marvels.